Okay, if you could make your way back in now. Check out the baby later. Come on. Come in, come in. Come on in, have a seat so we can get going here. You can talk afterwards. Okay, now that you're in and you're seated, could you all stand? Could you put those words up, Elizabeth? And I know that normally we like accompaniment and it goes really well, but I think sometimes uh, just using your voices a cappella is also a good thing. So would you join with me as we sing together this well-known hymn? It goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Thank you. You may be seated. Good job. How many of you really like that song? How many of you know the story behind the song? How many of you know the actual guy who wrote it? Not personally. (laughs) Horatio Spafford uh, was a fairly prominent businessman located in Chicago. And um, in his life, he also owned a business, but he was also a very vocal believer. He was a Christian, served God faithfully in his family and in his business. Well, the great Chicago fire came. Uh, You guys will remember the story with Mrs. O'Leary's cow knocking over the lantern and the fire that destroyed what in today's funds would be equivalent to over $4 billion worth of damage. Horatio Spafford lost his business, didn't know what to do, and he felt that He needed to send his family away where he could get things finished in terms of the closure of his businesses. So he put his wife and his four daughters on what is called the Ville de Harve ocean liner and sent them to Europe. Four days out, they struck uh, a Scottish vessel called the Lockern. And within 12 minutes, the Ville de Harve had gone under the sea and it had taken with it 226 lives including Spafford's four daughters. His wife was found hanging on to a piece of flotsam that was lying in the ocean and was rescued and taken to Europe. And she texted, I shouldn't say texted, what would it be? Um, 
Telegram, thank you. Uh, what would you call it in the other form, though? Grammed her husband and wrote this and said, Saved alone, what shall I do? Uh, Horatio Spafford booked a passage immediately, was on his way to Europe, and after four days on this other ocean liner that he was on, the captain called him to his cabin and said, this is the very spot where the ship was sunk and your daughter's lives were taken. He went out on the deck and with tears in his eyes, he wrote the words to the hymn that you have just sung. But I don't know if you've ever even paid attention to what you sing. I don't know how many of you just sing and you don't know what you're singing. Here is my question. Is it really well with your soul or have you just learned to say it is well with your soul? Because that's what you just sung. It says, thou hast taught me to say it is well. But the question is, are you just saying it or are you really well? And again, I'm not asking you to answer out loud. I'm asking you to think about it. You just sang it. Did you sing a lie? Or did you sing the truth? The truth is, yeah, you've taught me to say it. I don't feel it, but you've taught me to say it. Um, how many of you are asked on a regular basis, you know, maybe you're out for a walk. I don't know how many of you go for a walk once in a while, or you're walking down the street, or you pass somebody, and they'll see you, they'll know who you are, and invariably, somebody's going to say to you, how you doing? And what's your stock and trade answer? Fine. Good. Good, good. Fine. I'm fine. Good. How many of you are really fine, though? How many of you, the truth is, you want to stop them for a second and tell them the truth. Just one person. I'd like you to know the whole truth, to know what my life is really like. Um, I go to physical therapy twice a week. I go to physical therapy twice a week. I don't even go to the doctor once a year. And I'm going to physical therapy twice a week. And I have discovered something. I have discovered that I don't like pain. I have discovered something almost as bad as that. I have discovered that I'm a baby. But I've discovered something worse than even that. I've discovered that I don't like anybody to think I'm a baby. So while the therapist is stretching me into a pretzel, he asks me, it, it's usually a he, he asks me almost every time, any pain? And I, sometimes through gritted teeth, say, nope, I'm fine, fine. Even though I want to punch him in the face for hurting me so much. I don't like pain. Have you discovered yet that often our words and even our facial expressions, even our testimonies, sometimes don't align themselves with what our inner life is really like. What we really feel inside. We're really good, and I say this among a bunch of Christians, I'm sure, but the truth is we're really good at lying. At not telling the truth about what's going on inside of us. Now, for me... Um, I have a, a, a confession. Uh, Karen and I have been married for uh, 38 years. That's my confession. Um, and uh, the truth is, our marriage is a good marriage. We do pretty well together. But every once in a while, we have something comes up. I, how, how many of you are married here today? 
How many of you in your marriage ever have something come up between you? Ever? Ever? Those of you that put your hands down, I don't even like you anymore. <laughs> Karen and I had an issue this week. And um, maybe, maybe this has ever happened to you. Have you ever found some words coming out of your mouth and you step back from it just a little bit? Maybe, maybe you take a little bit of time, let things cool down a little bit. You step back, you think about it, and you say, where in the world did that come from? Did you ever do that? Did you ever think, I don't act like that. I don't talk like that. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? I want to suggest to you that whether you like it or not, your inner life is going to come out somewhere, somehow, sometime. What's inside of you is going to boil over. Um, it's kind of like somebody said, you know, um, I have this cup, and I want you to walk across the room without spilling it, and you try your best. And they say, okay, how come the water spilled? You say, well, because I jiggled. He said, no, you didn't. Well, yeah, I did. That's why it spilled. No, it spilled because there's water in it. And the truth is, we got stuff inside of us. You got stuff, and I got stuff. We got things inside of us that, given the right circumstances, can boil over. It's called what's in our soul. Um, I thought about... Our world, and I don't know how many times, uh, uh, please forgive me if you're one of these people, but I rarely turn on my radio anymore. I'm in the car, I don't turn on my radio because invariably what's on the radio is bad news. It's things I don't really care to hear anymore. Um, my mother-in-law watches news. Uh, she sits down in her apartment and she watches news. We come down and she oh, did you Yo, what's going on? And I know she's been watching the news again, and I want to say to her, stop watching the news. But I was thinking about some of the... Th have you paid attention to what goes on out there in the world? Have you ever listened to the news and thought, how do sane people act like that? Uh, listen to this. How many of you know who Andrea Yates is? Any of you recognize that name? Andrea Yates. She was a mother with five children and with her bible open on her lap she drowned one after another all five of her children i heard that and i thought who does that what's wrong with them or how about lashandra armstrong more recent any of you guys heard that she is the one who put her four children in her minivan and drove into the lake with the intention of drowning all of them. And the only one that escaped was her eight, I think it was eight-year-old, her older son, who escaped through her mother's window. As he testified later, she's trying to grab his ankles to hold him under. Who does that? Or probably the most recent one, Faseel Hussein. He's the man who walked through the streets of Toronto and shot 15 people. You guys remember that? How many of you listen to the news and you think, what's wrong with people? Why do they act like that? The interesting thing is, in every single case that I mentioned to you, the family and the friends, and in some cases the church, would say, 
what they did was so far outside of the norm of each one. For Sal Hussein, his neighbors, his friends, and his church said he was a normal young man who was quiet, who was reserved. And the only time you ever saw him act anywhere differently than that was when, for some reason, he could not get his medication. And that's what happened that day. And it caused him to act outside of the common. Um, now, I want, I want you, if you can, if you can be honest for a second, I know this is hard uh, because you guys are so good at pretending and lying. Um, but if you can be honest for a second, how many of you have gotten mad at somebody for, uh, I can't think of any, uh, okay, you've been driving down the road, you're late to get somewhere, and somebody in front of you is doing less than the speed limit. How many of you have been tempted to swear at them? Okay, how, no, I didn't ask if you did swear. God, you guys, you are bad. You should go to church. Um, somebody does something that really bugs you, and you want to explode. Is it really all that different than the three examples I just gave you? Oh, maybe it's different in degree, and it's certainly different in results because you're just letting it blurt out of your mouth. But is not the anger, the wrath, murderous inside of you sometimes? You get so mad, you want to punch somebody. You want to do something. Is our losing it really all that different than what they went through? I would suggest to you that life uh, can be hard, it can be challenging. It can be painful at times. And sometimes it's so hard, it's so painful that you can't handle it well. You explode. Something happens. You do something crazy. Even Christians, Christians, believers, can sometimes be overwhelmed with life. Can feel like you can't take any more. Let me off of this roller coaster. I can't take too much. I mean, you just heard Nick sharing his testimony about what it's like. You have a good day. You might even have two good days. Then you have a bad day. Even on the good day, you got some doctor, some intern, some nurse who's going to give you bad information. And you find your emotions on a roller coaster ride. And sometimes it gets so much that you wonder, can I even take any more? It's more than what I can bear. Think about it on a simple level. We're talking about acting out. How many of you would agree that eating a half gallon of ice cream in one sitting is probably not the wisest thing for you to do? How many of you have been tempted to do that when things have been really upsetting at home? Maybe you've had a fight with your spouse, and that gallon of Rocky Road ice cream, and let's, let's admit it, if you're going to have ice cream, ice cream can get really boring. Have you discovered that? What makes ice cream better? What is it? What is, I'm sorry. Ben and Jerry's ice cream makes it better. What else? Hot fudge. Come on, admit it. If I'm going to have a half a gallon of ice cream, I've got to make it go down smoother. So I'm going to take that whole thing of hot fudge and pour it on top of it. How many of you know that in your saner moments you would never give in to that temptation? But when you're upset, you do things that you would normally never do. Or how many... People 
at night when they're upset. You know, they love their spouse. They genuinely, they're married, they love their spouse. They genuinely love their spouse. But they're hurting inside. They feel lonely. It's not the spouse's fault. The truth is, it's almost never the spouse's fault. And I say that honestly as a married man. It's not Karen's fault. There's something inside of me that God needs to heal. So me blaming her doesn't save anything. But in those moments when I'm lonely, when I'm hurting, I can be tempted just like anybody else. And sometimes people give in. And you find yourself looking at things on the internet that you should never look at. Because you're lonely. You act out in ways that you know are wrong and unhealthy. But you're hurting. And you find yourself doing it. Or maybe for you, it's the way to fix everything is just to go shopping. You laugh, but it's true. I've watched people go out and buy a new car because it will make them feel better. Can I suggest to you, I don't care how new the car is, it's still just four wheels. It doesn't really fix anything. Change of life, I've watched guys do crazy things. Transitions in life can be difficult. The kids leave home. And I've watched people who have been married and genuinely been okay together. Maybe not a perfect marriage. None of them are. But they're genuinely okay. But the kids graduate, they leave home, and they say, all right, I never ever did, and I'm done. What are you thinking? Things that you would normally not do. And all of this is describing what I'm going to call for you today soul sickness soul sickness it's where something inside of our soul which is the seed of our being isn't quite right it's off we're hurting we're in pain and we're struggling and we're saying god will you let me off this merry-go-round i'm getting dizzy and i don't think i can take any more this desire for something more or better is i believe inside of all of us because we know we're made for something better I talked with someone uh, just recently who's facing very dire situation in their family. Very dire. I mean, we're talking about life and death stuff. And the, the approach was, well, you know, if, if there's death, there's death. It doesn't matter. I'm okay with it. Like, no, we're not made for death. We're made for life. We know that in our being. That's why when somebody dies, especially when somebody dies young, we're thinking there's something wrong. That longing for something better. A fear that we have that if we ever were really honest and let go, we might lose ourselves. We don't know what would happen if it ever really let it go all the way. It could be really bad. I was looking at some stats because uh, that's just kind of how I, I look at things. Uh, I thought it was interesting that in the last two decades, how long's a decade, by the way? Ten years. So in the last two decades, it's how long? Twenty years. In the last 20 years in the United States of America, the suicide rate has gone up 25%. In just 20 years, the number one cause of death among children, I'll call them children, I, I know I over-address it, but you'll understand why. Children from the ages of 10 to 24, the number one cause of death is accidents. But do you know what the number two cause is? Suicide. In fact, suicidal death among that age bracket, 10, 10 years old, 
10 years old, all the way up to 24, suicide is greater than death caused by cancer, heart disease, AIDS, birth defects, stroke, pneumonia, influenza, and chronic lung disease combined. Suicide. A lack of hope. Can anything ever change? And lest you think it's only in the world, look at these stats from Christian ministers. These are pastors. Ministers of the gospel. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every single month. Now, lest you get that one wrong, I want to make sure you understand. When it talks about 1,500 people leaving the ministry, it doesn't mean they leave the ministry and they're gone forever. This was a stat that came out years ago from Focus on the Family, and it's been debunked. Because people say, oh, they leave the ministry, everybody quits. No, that's not the case. Some of them do quit the ministry forever, and they never go back. Some of them, however, are going to other churches because they're hoping that the new church will be better than their last church. They quit. I'm done here. Maybe the grass is greener on the other side. But 1,500 ministry changes per month. And many of them are quitting for good. 84% of pastors feel that they're on call 24-7 and they never, ever feel like they get a break. 80% feel that ministry has negatively affected their families. Now think about these stats. These are for... If, if you would, these are like, and I, I, you know that I don't really believe this way. You know this, but I'm going to use this as an example just because. It's like talking about the SEAL team at their best. These are the guys who live and breathe this stuff every moment of every day, and these are the stats about them. Not just ordinary folks like you and me. These are the best. And they're saying, this has negatively affected my family. 65% believe that they live in a glass house and they're judged more harshly than anyone else in the church. 65% feel like they do, don't have enough vacation. Amen. <laughs> I say it only because this year we can't take a vacation because we've got some challenges in our family that we have to take care of, not because of the church at all. The church is very gracious to us. 90% feel that, and I thought this was so interesting, that ministry is not what they thought it was going to be. Not what they expected. Ministry is not what they expected. 70% fight depression on a daily basis. 50%, this is the one that get me the most. 50% of pastors said they would leave the ministry if they could make a living another way. But they've given their whole life and training to ministry. They said, if I could make a living any other way, I would leave. 50%. 70% of ministers said they don't have one close friend. Not even one. 50% who started ministry today will quit ministry in five years' time. Won't even last five years, and they'll be done. You see, Christians struggle as much as people in the world. It's not just them out there. Even people in the Bible struggled. People like Moses. I mean, think about Moses. He's almost, he's, he's leading over a million people across the desert, and he's as close to, to losing it in his soul as you can be, until his father-in-law Jethro comes along and gives him some advice about how to maybe lead by delegation. But he's ready to lose it. Or think about Jeremiah. And, and again, these are like the great, they're in the, the whole uh, faith chapter in Hebrews 11. These are the big guys. Jeremiah sits out on an ash heap outside of Jerusalem, weeping, saying, God, I wish I'd never even been born. I'm so unhappy with my life. 
things like depression, anxiety, stress, fatigue, exhaustion, worry, discouragement, fear, hopelessness. All of these, and they are encapsulated in this idea of burnout. Just losing it. I can't take any more. So, what are we to do with this spiral, this downward spiral of hopelessness, of will it ever change? Will will my marriage ever get better? Will my job situation ever change? I've done my best. I've worked my hardest. Will anything ever get better? Or the truth is, it goes even deeper than that. It's this feeling that I just don't fit into this world. Something's not right. How do we deal with it? Over these next four weeks, including today, we want to talk to you about what I'm going to call simple ways of looking at life that might help. Now, in saying it, I want to be clear. There's a difference between simple and simplistic. I'm not talking about a simplistic thing, like do A, B, C, and everything will be fine, and you'll be happy for the rest of your life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more like, if, if you would hear us, and I say us because it's going to be more than just me, but if you would hear us, I believe that what we're going to say can be for you perhaps step one, just a step in the right direction toward a kind of soul care that will be helpful and healing. Uh, what I'm going to share with you this morning um, isn't new to me. In fact, what I'm going to share over today and next week is really kind of part of the warp and move of who I am. It's not who I've always been. I've always been kind of a driven kind of person. I want my list. I'm going to do my list. I'm going to work it out. I want things to grow at this pace. I, I, I was, that's how I was until I realized sometime some years ago that it just wasn't working for me. I, I wasn't able, number one. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not enough. But then I also realized I wasn't happy. I didn't have, as we sang this morning, deep joy in my heart. And I began to grapple with things. And so what I'm going to share with you really has been stuff that has coming, come to me by way of revelation. Not revelation directly from God, although I do believe he certainly had a hand in it, but revelation that God gave to some people who were integral at that season of my life to speak into my life and to bring some healing and help to me. So I'm going to share that. The, the first guy that I, I'm, I'm going to just address, because I think you ought to give credit where credit is due. So what we're sharing over these weeks are not original to us. It, it's, it is certainly part of who we are, but it's not original with us. It's, a, it's a, an approach that has actually been put together by some others. The first one is a guy by the name of Terry Wardle. He was a part of uh, Ashland Theological Seminary in Ohio, a program that I was a part of. And when he began to share, as soon as he began to share, Inside of me, it was like these huge bells went off, and I thought, for the first time in my life, this guy gets it. I think he actually knows what's going on inside of me. And I've talked to him over the years about other things that have helped me to grow and to heal. The program that we're going to actually talk to you about over these weeks, though, come from two other guys. Uh, One is a British psychiatrist, Dr. Frank Lake, is his name, and then a Swiss theologian by the name of Emil Bruner. And the reason why they got into it, by the way, let me take one step back. Terry Wardle, wonderful man of God. He's, I think he's 64, 65, something like that now. 
But he was the pastor of the Alliance Church in Redding, California. How many of you ever heard of Redding, California? He had revival going in his church that was so big and so full-blown that Bill Johnson would go to their church to get refreshed before there was anything at Bethel at all. When Bethel used to be like 40, 50 people, Bill Johnson, who was the pastor, would go to Terry Wardle's church. And in the middle of it, one day, he couldn't get out of bed. He ended up in a psychiatric center getting the care that he needed. And he said, in retrospect, it was the best thing that God ever did for him. Took the bottom right out for him, and he realized he was running the whole show trying to do it himself. And God taught him so many things that he has since used to teach people like me. But these other two guys were part of an organization where they had missionaries going out right and left. They were a mission agency. Missionaries were going out, but they discovered something. They would send missionaries out, like to India or different places, you know, Indonesia, wherever. They would send missionaries out with the intent that they would go there for their life, and within a couple of years, they would come home burned out and never, ever follow through in ministry. And so they began to look at what was wrong with the system that these guys were burning out so fast, and then they asked them this, themselves this question. Why didn't Jesus burn out? How come Jesus, who suffered more than any other human being on earth, went through more betrayal, more struggles, more challenges than anybody else. Why didn't Jesus quit? Why didn't he burn out? And they began to notice some things about his life. Um, it it kind of comes to this. We believe in our heart of hearts that God has saved us by grace, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. In other words, God's grace is that he forgives you, but the only way that's activated in your life is if you apply faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. It's belief. That you believe what God says is true. That he loves you, he accepts you, he's forgiven you. We believe that's salvation. But in our heart of hearts, more often than not, we believe once we get saved, now it's on me. I've got to prove that God has made a good choice in me. So I've got to behave myself. I've got to act in a certain way. I've got to do things in a certain way. I've got to learn to speak in a certain way. We even do it in church. We say to people, you can come in and you can be a part of us if you would just clean up a little bit first. If you'd get your life in order so you wouldn't be any kind of hassle to the pastors, that would be very nice. Uh, if you could actually you know, get your finances in order, get your marriage in order, then, then we'll look at you as a good, upright, upstanding Christian. But that's not how we started this whole thing. We started as a mess. And we needed salvation. We needed a Savior. And the truth is, if we're honest, we're never all that good. We're still messes sometimes. We still got problems that we need a Savior for. Now, if you think about this principle, our life principle has become something like this. Achievement proves my significance. Achievement proves my worth. In other words, God, you've saved me. I better give you something to show for it. That I've been worth it. I've been worth your blood. I've been worth your suffering on the cross. Look at my life now. See how much I've changed? See how good I am? I used to do this. I don't do that anymore. Now I do this. Isn't that much better? Let him who stole steal no longer. So God, I used to steal. Now I don't steal anymore. Aren't you proud of me? As if somehow that proves that I am worth more. 
And so you go through day by day, month by month, year by year, hoping to get better and better, and hoping and praying you don't blow it or make a mistake. Because if you blow it, you go back to ground zero. I've been doing therapy for, uh, I don't know, two months now, something like that. And it was hurting. It really was. I mean, it was hurting. And I'm thinking, if this is the best it's going to get, I'm in trouble. And finally, the, they, they put me with uh, assistant therapist and things like that. Finally, the therapist herself came and said, I, I want to assess you because it doesn't seem like it's going right. And so she assessed me, and she found out that my right shoulder blade, I think it's called the scapula, is that what it's called? Scapula. was like frozen. And so that when you lift your arm and it goes up like this, the bone goes up, the socket goes up like this, and it's supposed to actually go around like this so that as you lift your arm, actually that bone doesn't go in. It actually goes around your shoulder. Instead, mine goes up and it hits it every time. She says, we've got a break where this is all frozen here on your scapula. So she said, we have to start all over. And that's when she said that to me, I'm thinking, I've been doing this for two months and now you want to start all over? Why do you do this from the beginning? Well, I think sometimes we feel that way with God. It's like, I tried my best and I've blown it. I guess I've got to start all over again back at ground zero. And here's the problem. No matter what you do, how good it is, how much it is, how big it is, it's never quite enough. Because what you did for God yesterday is great. Good job. Proud of you. What would you do for me today? Oh, you did that this morning? Good, good, good. What did you do in the last five minutes? And that's the way our life is. It's never enough. It's never good enough. It's never big enough. It's never long enough. Everybody else might be better than me, but that's how it feels to me. And I think that at its core is soul sickness. Um, yesterday's accomplishments are never enough. I always have to produce more. I have to be better than what I really am. But Dr. Lake and Emil Bruner discovered that Jesus didn't go where we went. We go to achievement, to production. Are you being a productive member in the body of Christ? Even what we talked about over this last month with our gifts, are you using your gifts? That can become achievement-oriented. Anything can be. But they discovered Jesus didn't go there. Jesus didn't start with achievement. Jesus actually started somewhere else. They discovered that Jesus had a kind of pattern to his life. A, a, um, maybe another word, a better word would be, he had a rhythm to his life that helped him to keep a balance. And, and it kind of looks like this. Can you put up that first picture there? There is a balance between input and output in Jesus' life that helped him to be able to sustain that to which God had called him to be as a human being, as a person. And it became clear to him, to them, as they looked at Jesus' life, that Jesus started in a place different than us. We usually start with our productivity, with our achievement. But Jesus didn't. Jesus started with knowing who he was. His identity. Or they use the word acceptance, if you could put up that next screen. They started with acceptance. So if you look at this as kind of like a cycle of his life, what's going into Jesus is the Father's acceptance. Now, it would be easy, like when somebody says, you know, Zach's here, and Zach does something, and I say to him, or he says to me, so how, how, how did I do, Pastor Chris? And I say, well, you know, that's acceptable. What does that mean? It means, eh, it's okay. 
it's average, maybe, something like that. But when we talk about the Father's acceptance, we're not talking about just getting by. We're talking about all of the Father's favor put upon you. I've got a picture that you guys gave me for my birthday this year. I turned 60, and I, they, the church believed it was time for me to grow up a little bit. So they gave me this picture, and the picture is me overlooking a, a lake over uh, not too far from here. And one of the things it says at the bottom is, you are God's favorite son. And, you know, some of us don't like that whole idea because, you know, you can't have more than one favorite, although I think God can probably do anything he wants. We do know he says you are favored, well, it's not a big jump from favorite to favorite. Well, when we talk about acceptance, that's what it means. It means God says, you're my favorite, and you can't do anything to change that whatsoever. You can't make that change by your achievement or your lack of achievement because I have put my acceptance upon you. And, and I have a drawing that I actually found somewhere, uh, and it goes like this. Most of us, when we start life, we allow others to define us. If you look at that bottom line, the bottom line's like our life. And then as we go through life, we start with people kind of defining us. It's who our parents say we are. It's who friends say we are. It's even who the church says we are. I, and I know it might seem silly to you, but when my granddaughters come in the church on Sunday morning or other times over to our house, I'll see them, and it doesn't matter to me because I love my granddaughters. I love my grandsons. And so I look at them, and I, I, I saw Jocelyn walk in the door today. And I said, hey, beautiful girl, I want them to know they don't have to do one thing to get any better. As far as I'm concerned, they're it. And that's kind of what God does. God, it's not that God is blind to our faults. You know, some people say, well, Jesus never sees our faults because of his blood. I don't think God is blind or stupid. But I do think he loves you regardless. Even knowing what's in you, he knows that love or, as we sang this morning, mercy is still going to triumph over judgment. That love makes a difference in a life. But we start with people defining us. If you put that back up there, leave it up there for a minute. Thank you, Elizabeth. So we start with that idea that people around us help give us our identity. They tell us who we are. We find out we're a boy, we're a girl. We find out our name over time. And when we can say our whole name, that's a big deal. And then pretty soon we know our address. But people are the ones who are defining us. But there can come a point in our lives, and I can remember in my own life, where we say, I don't want people to define me anymore. And we can go to the other extreme where we reject people and we define ourselves. I can remember sitting in a Sunday school room with um, Pastor Byther and his son, David, and they were talking about this whole principle. And I can remember saying, and again, you got to get this, I was probably 10 years old. And they say, well, you know, what people think about us really matters. And I, I spoke up, as any arrogant 10-year-old could say. I said, I don't care what anybody thinks about me at all. I am who I am. I was 10 years old. I didn't know Sikkim. But I'm telling them, I don't care. But there are people who live their lives, they go from one extreme where they let people define them to the other extreme where I don't care what anybody thinks, I'll do what I want. And they can just suffer the consequences. And they're proud of it. They're proud of being independent. They're proud of being their own person. No longer defined by anybody. You don't like me, that's your tough luck. And I read it on Facebook. People are just like, I think you do realize that people read Facebook, right? This is not your diary. But I would suggest that there's a better place to live 
with a lot more room to move, which is you allow yourself to be who God says you are, to be defined by God and what He says about you while you stay related to people. They don't define you anymore, but you stay connected or related to them. And I think that's a safer place for us to live. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus had people in his life. He had a mother, he had a father, or at least a stepfather, whatever you would call Joseph at the time. But he had people in his life who loved him, who accepted him, who spoke hope and purpose into his life. I'm sure Mary probably told Jesus the story many times of when the angel came and visited her and told her about him. And this is who you are. Just like some of you parents do for your kids to say, God spoke to me while I was carrying you in my womb. And this is what he said to me about you. But then Jesus also had a place and a time where the Father spoke to him of his acceptance. The first time we hear about it is at Jesus' baptism. Remember what happened? He goes down into the water to be baptized. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends like a dove. It doesn't say the Spirit was a dove, by the way, but it descended like a dove, kind of fluttered down. The Spirit comes down, rests upon him, and then the Father from heaven says these words in Mark 1.11. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let me ask you, what had Jesus done at this point in order to deserve that kind of acceptance? Had he done any miracles yet? Had he preached any great sermons? Told any great parables yet? The truth is Jesus had done nothing he was newly walking into that which he was being called to in ministry. But before he had done one thing, he had the Father's acceptance. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus knew that you can't earn acceptance. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. Um, there's an interesting fact. There is a day in every one of your lives in which you are celebrated you are lauded for doing nothing but being alive. What is it? Your birthday. So, everybody puts candles on a cake, white cake with white frosting, just reminding everybody. You, you have a white cake with white frosting. Make sure it's thick buttercream frosting, by the way. Moist white cake. You put candles on that cake, and everybody sings happy birthday to you, and they celebrate you for no other reason than that you're still breathing. Right? Think about it. I mean, think about the day you were born. Is there ever a day that you were worth less? Come on, you were slimy. Have you ever been there at a birth? I mean, you were incompetent. You were weak. You were slow. You weren't coordinated. You were uh, dumb. You didn't know anything. But on that day, you're celebrated, and every year after that, we celebrate back to that day. In fact, if you have the grace to live 100 years, guess what you get? A cake? I hope so. I saw, well, I saw it in Country Courier. Somebody at the uh, nursing home just turned like 111, was it? Somebody go back and check that for me, Jeremy. Um, they had a big birthday, and this guy got three cakes. But no, you know what you get if you turn 100? You get a birthday card from the President of the United States. Why did you deserve that? Just because you stayed alive. 
That's it. Birthdays are grace gifts. And that's a good symbol of what it means to be accepted of the Father. Just the fact that you were born again is enough for the Father to celebrate you every single moment of every single day. We so easily forget that our lives are gifts from God. And His acceptance of us, or or my favorite words out of Ephesians chapter 1, you are chosen, you are adopted, and you are accepted in the beloved, came as a gift from God. And nothing you can do earns it or can take it away. The Father's love is upon you. It's not how much money you make in this life or how long you happen to do anything, how big it is. None of that stuff matters. The Father's going to love you regardless. He's going to carry you in his heart. We talk about accepting Jesus in our heart, but sometimes that, that wording falls so, so short. The truth is he invites us into his heart so that we can know how he feels about us and where we really fit in this world. And for Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't like a one-time thing that he wrote in the front of his Bible, and every once in a while he had to go back and look at it to remind himself. And I'm not even saying it's wrong to have things that remind you, but Jesus didn't need that because that kind of experience happened throughout his life. On another occasion when he was in the midst of a really challenging time of ministry, he decided to get away with three of his disciples. He went away with Peter, James, and John, and he went up to a mountaintop. And there he met with God at what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. We see it in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. It says, A cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud from the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Throughout his life, even to the very end of his life, at what we call the Last Supper, listen to what Jesus says in his Gospel, John 13, 3. Jesus Knowing that the Father had given, knowing, knowing's the key word, knowing some things. He knew some things in his soul. Knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and knowing that he had come from God and was going to God. I mean, that's enough to give anybody security in life. I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going. I know who my Father is. Rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. How is it that people find grace to actually serve one another? It comes when you know who you are, who the Father has called you to be. Then, cleaning a bathroom doesn't seem like it's low class to you at all. Having to vacuum the floor after an event isn't like, well, I leave that for the deacons because that's just beneath me. No, you find that if you know who you are because you have the Father's acceptance, there is no serving that is beneath you because I know who I am. And even his disciples knew this truth. Look at uh, Mark 3, 14. Then he, Jesus, appointed 12 first that they might be with him and then that he might send them out to preach. But it starts where they had to be with him. They had to know who they were in his presence. They had to know his acceptance before they could move forward. We tend to think that if we could only get our lives together, if I could only behave, give me five good minutes where nothing goes wrong then God will be happy with me for those five minutes. Uh, I, I told you this recently, and it just it comes back to me so strongly. I had a, a teacher at Eon who said once, I pray that God would give me five 
minutes in which there is absolutely no sin in my life, and then I could die happy. I could die happy. Just five minutes. No bad thoughts, no stray thoughts, no nothing bad. Everything God. And then I could die. And I want to suggest to you, that's a terrible way to live. Because you're now depending upon some kind of foreign performance scale when we only have one scale that we can measure ourselves by, what the Father says. And he says, I have chosen you, I have adopted you, and I have accepted you. Jesus started, and if you look back to, if you could put that uh, symbol back up there, Elizabeth, with the acceptance on it. Look at that. How you can see on the one side where it comes up around the curve and acceptance comes in, it gets wider because as God speaks into your life, your soul gets bigger. Something is enlarged inside of you that enables you to go on. We think if only I could do better, God would be happier with me. But the truth is, God is more interested in union with you than he is in your holiness. Because he knows that if he can have union with you, holiness will follow. He knows that if you can receive his love, your life will change. God's not worried about you changing. One moment in God's presence can change you forever. That's not his issue. His issue is he wants you to be with him. One moment with him. So over these weeks, as we talk about this, like this first one is acceptance. If you would look at it as called the cycle of grace. In the cycle of grace, you start with acceptance. But even that doesn't come just because we give you some words or because you memorize some scripture. It comes because you have an encounter with the living Christ who wants you to know his acceptance. Would you stand with me? Over these next weeks, you're going to see us go through the different stages of that circle that you saw there, which is called the cycle of grace. But what I would like to do, uh, just kind of closing out today, is if you would just close your eyes for a moment, lock yourself away with the Lord as best as you're able, and listen to my voice, but press into God. And for some of you, uh, this is all brand new, and you don't even, you feel like you don't know God, but is there something in you that's interested that would like to know more about this God that we sing about and that we speak about? Some of you have been walking with God for a while, but it's become almost like just a matter of fact. I just do it. I go to church because it's a good thing to do. It's kind of like a professional thing to do. But I don't really feel his presence. Would you like to? Well, for some of you, maybe you've been walking with God and you've had encounters with God, but you know you still, like me, sometimes struggle. Struggle with acceptance, with identity, with believing. I believe he's as good as he is. I just believe I'm probably worse than he ever anticipated. And maybe some of you feel that same way. And what I want us to do this morning, just very, very briefly, is I want to offer you the opportunity to invite God to speak something of his acceptance into your soul. Because that's where the deep healing goes, is deep down inside of you. The scripture says deep calls to deep. If that's inside of you, I'm going to ask you just with your eyes closed, just say, God, I want that. I want to know your acceptance, the fullness of your pleasure. I want to know who you say I am. Not so that I can blow everybody off, but so out of that place of utter security, I can relate to people with wholeness.
instead of defensiveness. In effect, I'm just going to ask you if you would. And again, I know for some of you this is something that would be more than what you're able. Just to kind of lift your hands in, in a position of receiving and just say, God, I want to receive. I want to receive. I want to receive your favor, your pleasure, your acceptance. God, I want to receive who you say that I am. Father, right now in the name of Christ, in the name of our strong Savior, that name that is above every other name, <laughs> the name that vanquishes every enemy, that stills every lie, that speaks to the storms of our lives and says, peace, be still. In the strong name of Jesus Christ and by the shed blood of our Savior, let your presence come in, not as a matter of formula. This isn't just, if you'll do these four steps, then everything will be perfect. This is like a step of a lifetime. That we would say, God, I need you and your favor, your identity, that Christ would be in me and I would be in him. One in you. That was your prayer in John 17, that they may be one, Father, as you and I are one, that they might be one with us. Let that identity become what sustains us for a lifetime, without failure, without quitting, without giving up, let that be what holds us. And Lord, I know that all of my words and the words spoken over these next weeks aren't going to make a hill of beans difference unless you breathe upon them. So I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to come. Holy Spirit, We need you. Would you not reveal yourself to us and how you see us? That our lives would be changed forever because of that encounter. And Lord, help us not to try to work it up. Uh, help us not to pretend or somehow try to now say, okay, now I'm going to do better. Kind of like that day when I first met you in my my father said, now you'll be a good boy and you won't do anything wrong anymore. Lord, help us not to live like that way. It's not based upon our performance. It's based upon your performance, your heart, your love, the cross, the blood, your death, but your resurrection, that we are raised to newness of life in Christ. Lord, let that be a dawning revelation to us, I pray. In the name of Christ Jesus, the Lord. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day.